Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This week, Roger is born by Dr. Ray Taki, counsel and foreign relations expert on Iranian issues. He has written more than 250 articles and opinions pieces, has testified more than 20 times in various congressional committees, and is the author or co-author of five books, the most recent of which is titled The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty. For the Council on Foreign Relations, Ray served as a senior advisor at the State Department and as a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Roger and Ray discussed the Iranian nuclear deal, Reagan's approach to the Islamic Republic, and the Biden administration's approach to Tehran. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Ray Tage, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a privilege for me to be at the Reagan Institute. Well, uh, we're thrilled to have you here and uh, thrilled to talk about your latest book, The Last Shaw, uh, showing it here on the screen, Yale University Press, your fifth book. Wow. Some, something like that, yeah. Uh, is, is it a fun process? Do you just enjoy writing these, these long books? And actually, this one was, was it, what, what wasn't a tomb, but, you know, these historical books that go deep into archives and, and heavily footnoted. Uh, writing a book is different processes, uh, different stages. There's research, there is rough draft, and there's a final draft. I like the process when it ends, the final draft. Uh, <laughs> as I get older, as I get old, I like archival research the way I didn't when I was young. Uh, so I do the archival research, but the process of writing has always been laborious and difficult for me. Did you get out to the Reagan archives during this book or any other book? I have not been to Reagan archives for this book because it ends in 1980 before the advent of the Reagan administration. Uh, so the Reagan archives do not play a role in this. Uh, the archives of the previous administrations do, but it didn't go to the stage. It, it essentially ends with the conclusion of Jimmy Carter's presidency. Well, of course, you had the uh, the presidential race in 1980, and it was building up in, in 79. Uh, do you have plans to, to write the next next piece in the story of U.S.-Iranian relations? The next book I'm doing is going to be, again, on the revolution. I keep writing about the revolution, hoping the outcome is different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they always show up. <laughs> And for our viewers, we're talking about the Iranian Revolution. That's right. Uh, Not the Reagan Revolution. <laughs> exactly. Uh, One was this, a little more peaceful. This is going to be a book uh, in a lot of ways about the Iranian Revolution using new Persian archives that have come about. And also we'll have a better idea of Carter administration because the Carter records on the revolution 
are just beginning to be released. They have been tied up in a variety of lawsuits with the Iran-United States Tribunal Commission uh, that dealing with the commercial disputes going back to 1970s. They have finally been resolved. So the current records on the revolution are just now beginning to be released. Um, do, you, do you enjoy uh, doing archival research in English in a Carter archive or in Persian in a Iranian archive? Uh, always in English archives, uh, English language archives, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, American archives are more transparent. Oral mm -hmm. histories that the American politicians give are usually very banal. The Iranian politicians' oral histories are more richer. That's because they use considerable degree of mendacity. <laughs> <laughs> So they tend to be more enlivening <laughs> because they're just <laughs> lying all through the whole thing. <laughs> all right, well, let, let's go to the book. Uh, it's got a really wonderful reviews. Uh, one comes to mind, the Wall Street Journal by uh, Michael Duran of, of the Hudson Institute. Uh, we were chatting beforehand. There's another one, the National Review. Mm -hmm. um, of course, people want to understand what happened. They want to understand Iran, the Iranian Revolution, um, how they're different, uh, the government versus the people. And of course, your scholarship really helps explain and, and understand those things. Um, but the focus on the Shah, you know, who was he? And, you know, the revolution, should he have seen it coming? Was it inevitable? Um, you know, this is, this is uh, someone that worked with the United States. And so uh, the revolution, uh, obviously, um, really just took a country that we could partner with, a country that, you know, we became the great state. To say the least, the Shah was a complicated person. Uh, he was a person of extraordinary contradictions. He, he was a genuine modernizer in a sense that he wanted Iran to be industrial. He wanted to develop cities, uh, develop a middle class. Uh, develop an urban infrastructure. He wanted essentially modernize the country. He was a nationalist who believed that Iran should have a role in this region. And, but unlike his successors, he believed that Iran can best express itself and safeguard its interest in the international community in cooperation with the United States as opposed to an antagonism. Right. Toward, toward the United States, because Shaw was a nationalist and his successors are ideologues. And therefore, there's an ideological barrier. Uh, his big mistake was that he believed only autocrats and dictators can do big things. And he had always a disparaging view of democracy as a sort of Western disease and democratic institutions and hindrance to progress. But the problem for Shah was that he was a dictator who couldn't dictate. Uh, uh, he, he didn't have that cruelty streak that a dictator requires. Uh, so in a sense, he recoiled from. You have a quote. You have a quote that yeah. says uh, you concluded that, that, that he had a taste for absolutism. This is the Shah or Shah without the character to sustain it. That's right. That's right. He, he wasn't Stalin. He wasn't Mao. He wasn't Saddam. He wasn't Khomeini. He, to his credit, he, he was not an individual, despite the caricature depiction of him in the 
Western press at the time who wanted to shed blood. Well, he had he had um, he had his special police, right? He had his police force that was doing the dirty a, work. He had his, the police force called Savok, which, uh, if you look at the records of it, and I have the published records of it here, uh, goes through a number of changes itself. Uh, by the time you get to the late 1960s, partly under pressure from Western human rights organization, uh, organizations, and partly because of its own methodology, this is not to justify or whitewash Savak's crime, but it began to change its mode of operation. It became a massive surveillance state. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 it was getting extraordinary amount of information uh, through surveillance similar to Stasi, and less through torture and other things that tend to be unreliable anyway as a means of extracting viable information. So it was a country that, that omnipresent surveillance state created its own corrosive measures to it, right? It was everybody was suspicious of everybody else. Right. Uh, but the Shah was a lot of things. I always say he was cynical. He was certainly arrogant, but he wasn't cruel in that sense. Now, uh, when you have the revolution, Ray, um, it, of course, got rid of the Shah, but it also really decimated the country's institutions. Tell us about the institutions pre-revolution uh, within Iran and what happened as a result of the revolution. Iran during the time of the monarchy, really in the early stages of the monarchy, had, I wouldn't say a representative order from 1941 to 1960, the first 20 years of Shah's rule. I wouldn't say it was a representative system, but it has what I would call elite pluralism. Uh, you know, the, the parliament mattered and there were large landowners and others with their own interests. It had a lively press. I think at some point Tehran had, in the 1940s, 60, 70 newspapers. This is in a country with 95% illiteracy rate. Wow. Uh, so it, it had a sort of an elite politics. And those elite institutions tend to, to provide some cushion for the Shah. One of his prime ministers once told them that, uh, you know, in, in a country where things go wrong, you need other institutions that you can essentially point to. So eviscerating these institutions will not help you rule. And the Shah essentially emasculated all those institutions. He, cre he created a new cadre, a, a Western trained cadre, where currency of exchange, the currency of success in Iran was no longer having a savvy political sense of the countryside, the landlords did, but having the right degree from the Jack Kennedy School of Government. Uh, so those that westernized elite bought with themselves paradigms that were developed in the United States and in Europe, and essentially they used Iran as a laboratory for their social experimentation, denying its traditions, and in some cases being embarrassed by it. I think at some level, the Shah didn't like Iranians. Uh, <laughs> he viewed Iran as a sort of a country that he has to uplift. His model of development were always Western states. Uh, the Shah was 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 most- So he himself wasn't uh, someone who admired democracies. Not at all. Uh, the Shah was, was once asked, why don't you rule like a Scandinavian monarch? He said, fine, give me Scandinavian subjects. Uh, <laughs> so 
there was an aspect of him that he felt that Iranians should develop along Western lines. So when you, you, you know, what you're describing then, it, it seems to be kind of the recipe for why you'd have widespread support for a revolution, right? I mean, you, it's, it wasn't simply just religious fundamentalist ideologues. There were others who, you know, were, were, had this discontent. Well, it, a revolution is an impossible phenomenon to predict ahead of the time. You don't even understand it while you're living through it. Hmm. And as I have found out, it's difficult to chronicle in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's one of those most elusive social movements uh, that should not succeed, but somehow it does. And in 1970s Iran, a number of things happened. There was, as, as I think you suggested, a loss of confidence in civic institutions. And even the Shah says this. Everybody knew there was something wrong in Iran. I think the phrase that I use in the book is that Iran appeared like a dynamic country that nobody wanted to live in. Uh, there was that element that was a corrosive alienation. Mm -hmm. Number two, the Shah had created a middle class and a large student population that he did not want to give them political rights. And his bargain with them was a transactional one, economic rewards for sake of political passivity. But that was not acceptable to the Iranian middle class. They wanted to stay in how their government is ruled. Finally, there was actually a religious revival taking place in Iran in the 1970s, as it was throughout the Middle East. So religion was becoming not just something that people were returning to as a means of embracing their tradition in the midst of all these alienation, but it was becoming a political force, an ideology of dissent, not, not just a traditional ritualistic observation. And, and finally, you know, the Shah launches a liberalization movement which was ham-fisted and invited criticism of government, but it did not, did not provide an avenue for political expression, which leads me to another conclusion, how hard it is for an autocratic government to reform itself, right. even in the, when it senses the urgency of reform. And so well, that's, that's, that's that, a, that a lesson. Yeah, yeah, lesson for the world today, and particularly the United States today, as it once again has to develop strategies to deal with autocracies. So uh, maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, want to do one more question related to the book and then migrate outside the Shah and get to uh, post-revolution Iran. Um, your book also touches on the 1953, uh, what's generally known as the coup, uh, that was driven by the United States, specifically the CIA. Uh, you have a different take. Uh, tell us about that, why when you collect the facts, at least a different narrative. Well, there has been considerable release of documentary evidence as late as 2017. Uh, uh, there was a, about 1,000 pages of documents released, mostly intelligence documents by Rex Tillerson's Department of State. Those documents were held up. They were supposed to be released previously, but they were held up by John Kerry because he thought in some way they would offend the Iranians. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are actually, in August 1953, there is not one, but two coups in Iran. The first coup, I think, takes place on August 16th. And also everybody kind of accepts the basic facts of the first coup, namely there was American complicity, and that coup failed. Uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and those involved in it were arrested and shot flees Iran. That's a narrative that everybody accepts. The disagreement is what happens in the second coup, which takes place on August 19th, I believe. 
And here is a lot of dispute uh, about the evidence. It is my judgment that the Iranian actors who were involved in the coup, the military, the clergy, and the merchant class were far more important drivers of the second coup than the CIA. Uh, Kermit Roosevelt in particular, who was the CIA uh, representative there. And it is important to understand what did Kermit Roosevelt do on August 16th. The one thing that he did do was he got the, uh, the foreign press and therefore the Iranian press, who would follow the foreign press, to publish the Shah's decree dismissing Mossadegh from power. Yes. Okay. Yes, and, but that, that the publication the publicization of that decree helped galvanize the population. What most people who look at 1953 do not want to admit, or they look at 1953 to the prism of 1970s and 1979, is that the monarchy as an institution in 1953 still had very substantial popular support and support from traditional classes, the clergy, the military, and the nobility, and the merchant class. That is because the Iranian monarchy of 1953 was an institution that shared power with others. The real breakdown comes in the 1960s. So in my opinion, that the Iranian drivers were more consequential actors than what Kermit Roosevelt did or didn't do. The final thing I would say about the coup is the reason why people think it's very consequential is because they draw a very casual line between 53 and 1979. And in essence, they suggest without 53, 1979 would not have happened. Right. Well, that's of our own making. You know, this is the school that we did it to ourselves. Well, it ignores 25 years of history. It ignores a whole generation. Things happen. It, it is my opinion that the hinge years of Pahlavi dynasty, the hinge years of Iranian history, if you would, was not 1953, but early 1960s. It was mm -hmm. at that time that you began to see the Iranian political system began to shut down. It was at that time that the Shah began to eviscerate the old institutions. It was at that time that the Shah began to evict the old school politicians in favor of the younger cadre. By the time you move into 1960s, what becomes really remarkable is how young the Iranian political elite becomes. The Shah was young. He was in his 40s. His prime ministers were in his 40s. This became a young man's government, and young men make mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, as I get older, I always say there is benefit to wisdom and experience. As the commercial <laughs> says, as the State Farm commercial says, these guys have been around, you know, know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Wisdom uh, uh, in a conversation on Iran. Uh, from State Farm, right? And only you can deliver that. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to move outside of uh, the period of your book and the Shah and talk a little bit about the Reagan years. And of course, one of the most significant things that was happening uh, in the transition between the Carter administration and the Reagan administration, and, and in some ways, one of the issues that reinforced uh, the Reagan campaign's concerns uh, about the Carter administration and giving Carter a second term were the hostages, U.S. hostages in Iran. Uh, give us your take on that and, and, and specifically the, the 
turn of events that on a, on inauguration day, you have the release. Um, you know, I guess the popular understanding of what happens there is, well, they realize they're dealing with a different president. His name is Ronald Reagan, different set of policies, um, perhaps someone who has had, had more of a, a kind of deterrent. The Iranians were uh, concerned about, you know, how he might respond as a result, their relief, release, excuse me. Obviously, it's, it's more nuanced than that. Give us your take. Uh, the Iranians had become uh, the Iranian leadership who took over the uh, hostages. Uh, let me just say one thing about the seizure of the embassy, because there's a myth around that, too, that historical record eviscerates. Namely, that Khomeini did not know about the takeover of the embassy in advance, but he exploited it politically. The record demonstrates, both in Persian and English language, that Khomeini did know and he did order the takeover of the embassy. So why did he do so? He did so uh, for number one reason, which everybody agrees on, he wanted the crisis to consolidate the revolution. But he also did so for two other reasons. First, to humiliate the United States. At that time, uh, and maybe it's still true in many places, but particularly at that time, the United States exercised a large, it loomed large in the Iranian imagination. And he wanted to prove to the Iranians that America was weak and indecisive, and he can take over an American embassy and hold hostages without reprisal. So it, he was essentially trying to emasculate the United States. And he had a personal contempt for Jimmy Carter hmm. uh, because Carter was the last president during the Shah's dynasty, and he had been supportive of the dynasty. So he was personally contemptuous toward Carter. The Reagan angle for this is the Iranians were not sure about Reagan. He was he was unpredictable, and he, they weren't certain how he would react to what happened. During the negotiations to release the American uh, diplomats held, the Carter people had such lack of credibility with the Iranians that at some point they told the Iranian interlocutors that, that if you don't release the hostages to us, if you don't deal with us, the guy coming after us is so much worse. <laughs> so in order to gain leverage in the negotiations, they, they had play to, the Reagan card. They had to play the Reagan card. <laughs> right. In order to, and that to sort of impress well, I mean, the Reagan's, you know, Reagan's rhetoric vis-a-vis. Yeah. Uh, the Soviet Union, right? Uh, not just from uh, that campaign, right. Right. but historically, I mean, it, it wasn't uh, a piece of fiction, right? You know, you were making that up. There was a kind of evidentiary basis uh, to make that argument, you know, by the U.S. negotiators. And, and also, remember, Reagan made uh, Carter's handling of Iran quite naturally a centerpiece of his campaign. Uh, Ronald Reagan, as I said, used to tell the story during the campaign trail that namely Jimmy Carter came to him in a dream and said, uh, why do you want, uh, uh, why do you want my job? And Reagan said, he told them, I don't want your job. I want to be president. Uh, so it, 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 that played into the notion of Carter being indecisive and everything went wrong for Jimmy Carter. Right. I mean, he right. Well, and so another thing that went wrong for Jimmy Carter was the attempted rescue. Right. The attempted desert, rescue, yeah. Desert yeah. One fiasco. So, yeah. you know, that reinforced American concerns and I'm sure only made it that much more difficult to realize the return of the hostages. 
in April 1980, I believe, the Operation Eagle Claw came, and it was logistically extraordinarily complex, and unfortunately, it did not work, uh, regrettably. Uh, and that added to the impression of Carter as indecisive and America as indecisive and unable. At first, it was unable to protect this embassy. Two, it was unable to militarily extract his hostages once they were held. That played a great impression. Now, why were hostages released on the day of inauguration? I think there's two reasons for that. One is, in my opinion, uh, because Khomeini wanted to humiliate Jimmy Carter all the way to the end. And the second was the unpredictable nature of what was coming. And the third, if you recall, in September 1980, Iran had been invaded by Iraq. So the hostage issue was something they had to resolve at some point because they had more pressing national demands. And, and that's the next piece I want to get to as we move into the Reagan years. You have the Iraq-Iran war. Um, just give us some context on that conflict, how, how just bloody it was, and uh, the U.S. position um, on that in that war and, and who were backing. And, you know, certainly there was an element of let them exhaust themselves, but at the same time, uh, you know, we had, we had views on, on the outcome and, and the Reagan administration's approach to it. Uh, to turn between February, 1979, when the revolution succeeded to November, when the, when the hostages were taken, but really between February and that summer, there is actually a measure of intelligence cooperation between the United States and the Islamic Republic. And the Americans are telling Iranians leadership that, you know, Iraq seems to be assembling a formidable force for invasion of your country. You have heard previously that the United States may even have instigated the crisis. If the Americans were warning Iranians to be wary of what was happening. Uh, Saddam was concerned about the revolution's contagion and whether it will spread to his own population and, and therefore he undertook an invasion for a variety of reasons that Saddam invades countries because that's who he is. Uh, it is my view that there has been an exaggeration that the United States sided, tilted toward Iraq. Uh, hmm. That the United States position from Jimmy Carter onwards that it wanted a ceasefire and it wanted both countries to return to their respective borders. But it certainly did uh, provide some intelligence information to Iraqis that was actually critical in a variety of Iraqi campaigns during the 1980s as the war drags on in terms of blunting the Iranian offenses because Iranians would do human wave attacks and so forth and uh, intelligence allowed Iraq to be able to pinpoint this military hardware. Uh, but the American position really became that this war was unnecessary, unwise, costly, and this secession was better. But the two participants were both inclined to carry on the war. And the one who was really inclined to persist with the war after 1982, when Saddam was willing to sign a ceasefire, was Ayatollah Khomeini. Right. The war dragged on from 1982 to 1988 because of the Iranians. Uh, it could have stopped in 1982 but the Iranians at that time began to suggest that, you know, uh, that their, their slogan was, you know, we get to Jerusalem from Basra. Uh, their slogan was, we're going to, you know, invade Iraq. Right. So deeply ideological and just a willingness just to uh, throw so many lives at this, at this world. Give a sense of the, 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 the scope of the, the conflict and, and, and deaths. 
the the Iranian military strategy where they were going to blunt Iraq's technological advantage with human life loss. To send waves of people in, right? I mean, this is unreal. Well, not just waves of people, waves of people, children ages 15 and 16. Uh, they would go through the minefields and clear the mines, and then the professional or revolutionary guard military forces come. So when we talk about waves of people, we're talking about waves of teenagers to clear the minefields and not sacrifice experienced soldiers. So that was their strategy to some extent. Uh, and and it, 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 the inhumanity of it is, of course, staggering. It is important to emphasize, and this has to be noted, that Ayatollah Khomeini was one of the cruelest people that has ever ruled Persia. He was completely indifferent to human life when the revolution and its cause were at stake. He was a personally indifferent, he was indifferent in terms of humanity. When his son died in 1978, I believe, they told him, you know, your son Mustafa died. His only reaction was, those who come from God return to God. He did not attend the funeral. You, you figured you fit that in your schedule. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, his indifference to human life was amply displayed in the manner he consolidated the revolution at home and he prosecuted the war with Iraq. So, at home and exported abroad, which became you know key feature to this day. Right. Uh, a couple more things on, on on the Reagan era, and then we'll we'll get to uh, today's uh, uh, kind of Ron policy, which of course uh, out of the Council of Foreign Relations, you are expert. And, and, and write on and, and discuss all the time in, in policy circles. But before we get there, um, you know, one of the things that we had in a previous conversation with another guest um, on this show was reflecting on the Reagan military buildup and said one of the first displays of the buildup was in 1988 during Operation Praying Mantis. Um, you and I haven't talked about that before, but give us a little context of a, a lesser known a military operation and one how the you know militarily what the what the americans did and two how was it perceived and understood by the iranians uh and kind of did it have an impact uh, beyond that that one 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 moment in time in 1988 i think to some extent that operation and 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 it was catalytic in terms of ending the war uh, between Iran and Iraq, uh, because in 1987, when refining operations came and, and the United States was having a conflict with Iran in the Persian Gulf because of the mining of the waters by the Iranian peoples, and that confrontation took place where the United States actually sank two-thirds of the Iranian Navy, there was a concern in Iran at that time, particularly expressed to Khomeini by Rafsanjani, that there is a danger of war expanding and the Americans coming into it. And if they come into it with their capabilities and so forth, if we are in a confrontation with the United States, then it's not going to end well for us. A good example of the rational thinking of ideological players, right? I mean, they, they saw basically their Navy taken out. They saw they couldn't fight. And, uh, and despite their ideological you know, predisposition, you know, th there, there was a rational decision there, no? The Islamic Republic picks on the weak and the vulnerable. If you're weak, you become vulnerable. Uh, footnote, John Kerry, uh, uh, 
in, well, there's a non sequitur. Go, go, take me through that one. <laughs> well, if you perceive as weak, you're vulnerable to their to their exploitation and their power plays. So they had very little estimate of John Kerry as a negotiator, so they weren't going to give him anything. Uh, you're talking but, about when he was Secretary of State negotiating the Iran deal, this JCPOA. That's right, uh, and perhaps throughout his life. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that operation, I, and, and, and there was a tragedy involved as well, if you recall, the shooting down of the Iranian passenger airliner in yeah. July of 1988, which uh, caused uh, 240 passengers, 248 passengers to, 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 to perish. That operation as well, accidental as it was, further alarmed the Iranian political elites that the, a confrontation with the United States at the point of national exhaustion and at the point of difficulties in terms of the stalemated war with Iraq is unlikely to serve us well. The notion that the United States might become a more active player in the conflict was, I think, a key factor in causing Khomeini to do something he did not wish to do, namely end the war with Iraq in Interesting. Of course, as we exit the Reagan years and, and go to the modern day piece, we should also hit on the Iran-Contra affair, uh, you know, one of the great uh, controversies, uh, the second term of the Reagan administration, uh, so many ways in which uh, it, it captivated uh, Washington, the country, and impacted the Reagan administration. What I'm, what I'm most interested in uh, from you, Ray, is... How do the Iranians perceive, you know, like Ali North, these other players trying to engage with them, given that in parallel with that, you know, <laughs> these were, you know, adversaries and, and, and how did the uh, Iranians kind of view it, understand it at the time, and then also view it once it became public and you had all the investigations? Uh, there were, well, the, the genesis of the Iran-Contra affair can be described in, in two ways. Number one, uh, Ronald Reagan's kind of commitment and, 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 and compassion for the hostages held in Lebanon. That was always very uppermost on his mind. And yeah, Marty Anderson and Reagan Revolution really hits on that in his, in his treatment. Of course, he was a big Reagan insider and scholar, but that's, that's, that's really the, the point yeah. he makes throughout. He, uh, he was emotionally labored by that, uh, by the fate of those hostages, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly William Buckley, the CIA station chief and the torture that he went through, but others as well uh, who were held. That, that weighed on Ronald Reagan. There was a strategic rationale which seems, which seems kind of, in retrospect, and even at that time, an implausible one that began to originate in the intelligence community and elsewhere. And the strategic rationale was that Khomeini is about to die and there'll be contests for succession. And the United States should have a skin in the game that we cannot concede the country to leftists or other elements. So by essentially becoming a more active, engaging partner with Iranian actors, we can determine or influence the contours of succession. I don't know how selling weapons to a country constitutes affecting the condition, the, its political yeah. conditions and outcome, but that sort of evolved actually in the intelligence community. 
and it began to gain adherence. So it came out of KCCIA, but how, when you look at archives and, and get a sense of the Iranian thinking here, you know, I'm just curious if you, you know, what were the reactions or anything that kind of comes to mind in terms of how they viewed this? They viewed, the, the, first of all, some of the weaponry they got, particularly tow missiles, were anti-tank sure. missiles, were, were very critical for the battlefield. So they needed that kind of a, that kind of a military hardware. They viewed it in perfectly transactional terms. We'll get weapons from the United States and we'll pay for them and we'll use them against the Iraqis. I'm going to quickly they, interrupt they you on that. Yeah. Because, again, it, it teaches you something about this regime that deeply ideological as it is, they're able to engage in, 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 in transactional activities with their greatest adversaries. And, and it shows some sort of level of rational thinking, or at least they're not blinded by their ideology, no? Well, in terms of the fact that they were facing an existential crisis for the survival of the regime, namely, okay. <laughs> namely the stalemated war with Iraq, which was- That's causing, somewhat clarifying, I guess, huh? Which was causing an extraordinary degree of domestic discontent. If you look at the trajectory of the war, is, well, this is a remarkable aspect of it is, in the early phases of the war, in the first couple of years, the Iranians don't actually rely substantially on conscription. It is mostly volunteers. By the time you get to 87, 88, 86, they have to rely on conscription. And by 87, 88, they lack manpower. And this is particularly germane for a country that is trying to rely on manpower to overcome technological advantages of this adversary. So in this particular context, getting advanced weapons, such as tow and anti-tank missiles and so forth, is particularly important, irrespective of their source of origin. Uh, mm -hmm. But they did not view it as an indication of an opening to the United States or engagement with the United States. This was not going to be the opening to China that Buck McFarland right, assumed right. it would be. And so for them, it was weapons to use against Iraq. And the most sophisticated depository of those weaponry was the United States, who was willing to grant it that. And one of the people behind it was Hassan Rouhani. Right. <laughs> right. Well, tell, tell the significance of that. Um, for those who, who he, he was won't involved, make that connection. He was involved in it because he was a low-level official at the time. And what the Iranians wanted to do is when the Americans came to Iran, they would be dealing with low-level officials just to indicate to the Americans that this is not going to be a grand strategic opening. You're not meeting Chuan Lai, and you're not going to have an audience with uh, Chairman Mao. You're going to meet young, low-level officials, and that's all you're going to get. So... Three decades later, um, United States still finds uh, itself um, with this really hostile relationship with Iran. Uh, we are still in the, in the eyes of the Iranian regime, the great Satan. We attempt during the Obama years uh, to have some sort of agreement to address the Iranian nuclear program, uh, the JCPOA. Uh, that agreement is flawed, uh, you argue, and others, uh, not well, only for I, what I, I is... I'd like to interrupt. Uh, it's not me and others. It's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Every time right. he says the agreement has to be made longer and stronger, it, it means it was short and weak. Right. So, so we'll get to, so both in terms of the, the, the doc, you know, the agreement itself, in terms of what's in it, and then in terms of what was not included, what, 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 what's not there, you know addressing their export of terrorism or uh, ballistic missiles and the like. Uh, 
And now we find ourselves, you know, we get out of the deal during the Trump administration. Of course, Trump uh, ran hard against the deal uh, in terms only he could articulate the worst deal ever made. And now we have the Biden administration in office. Where are they on this? They they want to have a deal with the Iranians. But as you just noted, the secretary of state uh, Blinken has talked about the deal in terms that it needs to be improved. It needs to be a better deal. Uh, and it's not quite clear that we can get to the status quo ante. So uh, give us your take on where we're at in terms of we here, where the Biden administration is at on, on the Iran deal. Well, I should preface my remark by saying I'm not in their council, as you can imagine. <laughs> but, but, but well, you, have a keen, you have a keen analytical eye, why I'm asking. But I will offer you my observations. Uh, I, it is in my opinion that they would like to get back to a deal because if for from their perspective, you have to get back to a deal, become a, a participatory a participant in the deal before you can renegotiate it. The Trump administration's logic was the way you renegotiate the deal is by first repudiating it and you start from the difference. And, and so, adding pressure, the maximum pressure. It wasn't just leaving the deal. It right. was really putting pressure on the regime. That's right. Uh, and so I think now there's some disagreement, which is similar to when the United States and North Vietnamese argued about the shape and size of the negotiating table uh, is who goes first. Uh, right. it, I suspect at some point they'll have a choreographed step-by-step measure about how you get back to the United States, we'll do this, Iran will do this, the United States will do that, and they'll get back to a deal and begin the negotiations over a follow-on agreement, which, as you suggested, it involves uh, so-called malign activities, ballistic missiles, and so forth. Now, here's the thing I will say. There's a consensus in both capitals today, ironically enough, despite all the divisions we hear about Iran policy. There's a consensus in Washington that the joint comprehensive plan of action was a flawed agreement. Uh, it was, that's every time uh, Lincoln talks about longer and stronger, it essentially means that it wasn't what the Obama administration said it was, namely the landmark nuclear agreement and gold standard. So we all agree that's a bad agreement. There's a consensus in Iran that this agreement will not be negotiated. <laughs> uh, so well, there's Meaning a they're not interested in a new deal. Yes, there's a consensus in the United States that agreement was flawed and they should have follow-on agreements. There's a consensus in Iran that the agreement is what it is and there's not going to be a follow-on agreement. Bit of a gap, huh? Bit of a gap, but at least we all come together in our respective capitals. <laughs> <laughs> the Iran policy, neither in Washington or Tehran, is a, is a question of factual disputes. <laughs> but doesn't that put us, Ray, in, in, you know, at a disadvantage, us here being the United States, because without negotiating on a stronger deal, we have the status quo. And the status quo, as I understand it, is Iran is proliferating. They're growing and, and, and making their nuclear program more sophisticated, violating the IEA, you know, what the UN you know, Atomic Energy Agency says you cannot do. And the United States and this government, uh, the Biden administration is not interested in sustaining the maximum pressure on the Iranians uh, so that the Iranians would have to kind of think twice about continuing the building of their nuclear program. So doesn't this mean that the Iranians are getting what we don't want them to have and, and we're not really doing much about it? Uh, about that. Tell, the, give, me, give me your take. What am I missing? 
almost everybody in this administration has spent the past four years denouncing the maximum strategy of pressure as ineffective and a failure. They're doing it now. Their special envoy did it the other day. Uh, maximum strategy pressure. Is it Mally you're talking about, Robert That's Malley. right. They, they, in a VOA interview, he denounced the maximum strategy of pressure as a failure. Uh, if the United States gets back to a deal, it will have to relinquish a substantial amount of the leverage that was accumulated over the past four years in terms of economic pressure. So you're trying to renegotiate an agreement at the precise time where you have forfeited your leverage uh, or, or substantially eroded it. Uh, right. that, that's hard to see how it happens. Uh, but I would say if you're looking at the administration policy from a political perspective, and not so much as an attempt to resolve the issue, but kick the can down the road. It actually makes more sense. It doesn't make sense on a strategic explanation, but a political explanation would be as such. Uh, we have gone back to a deal which quote unquote, put Iran's nuclear program in a box. It doesn't, but you can say that. And yes, Mr. Cotton, you, you think this agreement is flawed. We agree with you. Right now, your, your imaginary scenario is yeah. this is them responding to Senator Tom Cotton's critique. Yes, we agree. I think with Senator Rubio critique. might be jealous that you've highlighted Cotton. Rubio, Go ahead. Cruz, Romney, Bacon, the whole, every Republican Sake, on this. <laughs> everybody. We agree with your critique of flaws of this group, of this agreement, and we try to renegotiate it. And those negotiations are, are envoy will meet the Deputy Foreign Minister of Iran in charge of oceanic affairs. There is one. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know why Iran has a Deputy Foreign Minister in charge of oceanic affairs. It doesn't border any oceans. But they got one. And he'll meet you in Geneva. And you guys can talk it over. And that, politically, I think that argument works better. Because it essentially tries to disarm the critics by agreeing with them. Right. That did, but but I think the political liability and more important, the political liability, the liability for our country's security and the no security question. of our allies is that all the while Iran will be proliferating yes. and they will they will come closer to a nuclear program that everybody doesn't want them to have. And I'm speaking for both, you know, the Trump administration and, and the Obama administration um, and the Biden administration. And the Biden administration. Uh, now, you, of course, have taken uh, a pretty interesting tack in, in terms of what what should happen, what we should be seeking uh, with Iran. We we had uh, Eric Edelman on, who was a co-author on this piece. This is something you wrote in Foreign Affairs in uh, June 2020, so just about nine months ago, um, called "The Next Iranian Revolution: Why Washington Should Seek Regime Change in Tehran." Uh, regime change, of course, is something that Americans don't want Americans to be involved in, right? I mean, uh, and yet you use this language um, of regime change in Tehran. Obviously, you're being provocative with it, but explain why this is the best route for the United States vis-a-vis -vis, uh, its relationship with Iran. Well, let me just say, uh, it, it, and this ties to the book. In the book, what I said was the drivers of Iranian history during the Pahlavi era were the Iranian people themselves. And I would say that's today. Uh, the drivers of Iranian history uh, 
are going to be the Iranian people. And I think in the first paragraph of the piece, it said something to the effect that the United States, the question is not whether the United States should have a regime change policy. It is whether it should help the Iranians in their attempt to change their regime. And it also stipulates that the United States role is likely to be a marginal one. Marginal. Uh, Right. Not you can't drive this thing out of the United States. No, I don't think anybody would suggest that. Uh, uh, I, I, as someone who doesn't believe we engineered regime change in 1953, I don't think we can drive this from the United States today. What we suggested in the piece, there are conditions in Iran uh, which are not that dissimilar to the Iran of 19 late 19 mid 1970s or the Soviet Union of the mid 1980s, a stagnant regime incapable of reforming itself, facing provocative class class, class stratifications, ongoing simmering protests, a regime whose vulnerability is obvious, and does the United States have a role? and pressing this regime further and therefore enabling its domestic opponents to become empowered. And, that, and that's, to me, that's just a fascinating way of framing it, that here we are in, in 2021 and the Iranian, uh, you know, government, the, the, the revolution has now essentially become, in many respects, uh, the very regime it ousted uh, in 1979. The last section of the book in the conclusion talks about the fact that the, the similarities between the two regimes, the Pahlavi dynasty and the Islamic Republic are striking. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll end up in the same way. History doesn't happen just because you want it to right. happen. Uh, but the similarities. But, but the are results also, of a theocracy like this, you know, this, yeah. this, you know, uh, versus an autocracy and one secular, you know, and one, one deeply religious, the fact that the results are the same is, uh, is fascinating and, and perhaps not intuitive. Well, it's a theocracy that has forfeited much of its legitimacy. It's a theocracy. Sure. It's a theocracy, actually, the, the being a theocratic state works to its disadvantage. Because it is one thing for secular leaders to be corrupt. It's another thing for your clergymen to be corrupt. It's another thing for those who advocate austerity and compassion and charity to be driving away and from their sermon in BMWs. Right. In a country that is impoverished, why there are more BMWs being sold in Tehran than Frankfurt? Uh, so that the corruption of the regime that is theological in its presentation, but not in its observations, is particularly galling to a public. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left, Ray. Um, so I want one more question on Iran, then we're going to go to our lightning round. But it goes to the article that you wrote in Foreign Affairs about regime change and what you just said now, which is, is going to have to come from the Iranian people. Give us uh, your take on the state of the opposition. How organized, how strong or not strong are they right now? Obviously, you're a very close watcher of what goes on within Iran. What is the opposition? How organized are they? Give us a feel for uh, what they're up to. I would say there's pervasive opposition sentiment that it pervades all social classes. 
Uh, and particularly in the last four years, it has affected the lower classes, the working classes. They were supposed to be the ones who were the, the main and the last constituency of the Islamic Republic tied to the regime by piety and patronage. Piety doesn't seem to be a factor given the corruption of the regime and patronage has attenuated because of domestic economic crisis. It's the regime today without a constituency. However, I would say, although opposition sentiment is pervasive, we don't see oppositional organizations and structures, at least they're not evident to me. That doesn't mean they don't exist at a certain subterranean level. If I'm a ruler of a country, I'm more afraid of pervasive opposition sentiment and rejection of my regime than an organization, because sentiment will create the structure. Structure doesn't always create the sentiment. Well, we're going to leave it there, go to our lightning round with Ray Take from Council of Foreign Relations, author of The Last Shaw, um, enthusiast of presidential biographies and histories. I know this from many of our conversations. Uh, so let's get your take on the lightning round questions. Share with us your favorite book about President Reagan, favorite Reagan speech, and favorite Reagan quote. The best book, in my opinion, is Stephen Hayward, The Age of Reagan. Uh, still, I think, the, 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 the most comprehensive one. Uh, best speech, best minister, favorite quote. A two volume one, right? That's two volume. You're only showing one volume. Yeah. I'm assuming you got the other. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, best speech, best minister, that's obvious. Best quote, we win, they lose. Boom. We will leave it there with we win, they lose with Ray Dage from the Council on Foreign Relations, author of the last Shaw, go buy it. Oxford, uh, Yale, excuse me, University Press. Very readable, uh, enjoyable. Ray, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Enjoy being here.